Well, happy Mother's Day to the mothers out there. Uh, this is a day where uh, good children write little notes to their parents and cards and gifts and things like that. My day started with a note, a handwritten note, to me from my mother, who uh, broke into my office yesterday, apparently. And um, so she, she sent me a note on Mother's Day, which is just really sweet. And she's, it reminds me, I give thanks to God for her, and she, uh, she introduced me to Jesus when I was a child, and she's just been uh, just a great encourager to me. So I'm grateful to God for my mother, and I'm grateful to God for this church. We're 170 years old today. You don't, you, yeah. You don't look so bad for 170. <laughs> uh, I want to reference a note that I received. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I received a note anonymously, and it just had a question on it. No name, and I wish that it wasn't from my mother. Uh, I don't, no, it wasn't from my mom, but it was from somebody who asked the question, how do you know that the Christian, the way it was worded, uh, that the Christian religion is true and that others are not? And... But no signature, and I wish the person had signed it, So, because uh, I would love to talk about this. And my hope today, as we look at this message, that you would have confidence, that you might grow in your confidence in your Christian faith. And we've been, I want to also welcome all of you who are, are visiting this morning and supporting families who are being baptized. Uh, well, some of the things we've been talking about as a church, this over the last, well, since New Year's really, is thinking about what does it mean to be the everyday people of God? And we talked about some different concepts. Uh, we talked about the church gathered and the church scattered. So when we get together like this, a full room of people, we are the church gathered. We are God's people and we worship and we learn and we uh, praise together and we pray together. But when we leave this place, we are still God's people. We are still on mission for him. We still experience God in the everyday of life. And that's the church scattered. So whether we are the church gathered or the church scattered, we are living on mission for him. And we're trying to focus how do we... Uh, and we spend most of our time scattered. So there's only however many hours in a week, 160-something hours a week, and then you're asleep for a bunch of those hours. And we, we only gather as a Christian community, whether you know maybe in a small group and here on Sunday morning or you meet with a Christian friend, maybe at most 10 hours a week if you're real involved. That leaves 110 hours that you're awake and you're not doing churchy stuff. And we want to focus on that 110 hours. How can I live out my faith in, in the, the bulk of my waking hours in my place of work, in my school, in my neighborhood, or whatever God has called me to? And we call that, another word we've been using, uh, we call it your front line. What is my front line ministries? You don't have to find it. You're already there. It's where you are every day. God is at work in your life and desires to use you to be a blessing to the world around you, that there's a goodness to your life and to your work and to all that you uh, do and accomplish, that God is at work in the midst of that. And we've been just focusing on that. So, but here's where these things connect. We often have trouble living out our faith in the 110 hours and the scattered life and the everyday because because we have doubts or because we're not confident in our faith. 
And we think that if I was somehow, if I understood my faith better, if I could deal with my doubts, if I could just understand it better, then I could live more you know, excellently for, for Jesus. And I don't want us as a community to get hung up on that, to um, just be so unsure and uncertain. And so we've been, we've been uh, this sermon series, we've been teaching through the different phrases of the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed is a very ancient summary of the Christian faith, a summary of the Apostles' teaching uh, that different traditions of the church have held to. It's one of the most ancient creeds of the church. These are basic foundational beliefs of Christians. And if we can get a good handle on these basic beliefs, you will be very well equipped to, uh, to have more confidence and to be sure of your faith and, um, and defend for your faith and to speak of Christ and to, to live it out. So, now, don't get me wrong here. In, in your life, you can't know the faith well enough to just convince everybody in the world around you. So, uh, case in point would be uh, Jesus. He proclaimed the truth of God's kingdom perfectly, yet he was rejected by many people. So many people followed him, many people rejected him. The apostles, they spoke the truth of the good news of Jesus, and some people put their faith in Jesus, and other people thought they were crazy tried to run them out of town and hurt them. It, it's, no matter how well you articulate your faith, it's going to be polarizing, no matter what. But what we, the, the, the goal of this isn't to, so that you can argue better with unbelievers. The goal is that you can have deep faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. So that's my goal this morning, is that you'll walk away from here feeling a bit more confident or certain and deepening in your faith. And we're going to cover three phrases of the Apostles' Creed this morning. It'll be kind of the three parts of our message. The first is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. The second is that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. I'm going to focus on his burial in this text that was read for us. And then thirdly, uh, that Jesus descended into hell, which is kind of a confusing concept and, and idea. And uh, it's a tough one, but we'll have to explore hell together this morning. So let's pray as we do this. So Father God, you're good to us. Oh, we thank you that you are present in this place. We pray that you teach us in this time, that your spirit would be very active in our hearts as we look at your word, as we consider our faith and what you're calling us to do and to be in the everyday of our lives. Uh, so we give this time to you, Lord. Teach us. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, our first phrase, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I'm so grateful to the, the Christian church that developed this statement of faith that they specifically say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because it, it, not just that Jesus suffered under, the, uh, uh, under Roman rule or Jesus suffered under the political powers of his day, but that Jesus suffered under a specific governor who served from 26 to 36 A.D. It's a very specific historical reference. And what this means is that our faith is very historic, and it's not just ideas, it's not just philosophy or teaching, it's rooted in events in history. Events that were witnessed by groups of people. So not only did Jesus suffer under Pontius Pilate, but there were crowds of people at this Trial. There were, group, there were people who witnessed this execution of Jesus. This is, 
This makes Christianity unlike other religions of the world. It really makes Christianity and Judaism as a, as a sister religion of faith is really different than other religious and faith systems. Other faith systems are, are based in teachings or in sacred books or sacred writings, but they're not necessarily historical events. Think about, uh, for example, Buddhism. It's rooted in sacred teaching and following a sacred spiritual path, but it's not tied to any real historic event or any one historic event. Islam is rooted in the teachings of the Quran, and as they understand it, it is uh, that uh, a word from God came to a prophet who wrote it down, and in that writing is, is God's message, and they, they value it and base their whole lives around it, but it's not tied to other than it being received by someone, events in history. Christianity itself is, is, is not primarily rooted in the teachings of Jesus. So if Jesus came and he taught what he taught and he commanded what he commanded and he went away, Christianity wouldn't stand because it's not primarily about his teachings. Now, as Christians, of course, we follow the commands of Jesus. We, we meditate on his words and his teachings. They're valuable to us, but they, they don't mean anything uh, except for what he accomplished, that Jesus Christ suffered under, uh, under, uh, under Pontius Pilate. He was accused by his, the religious leaders of the day, and the government leaders uh, uh, allowed his execution, that he died, and that he rose again, that these things actually happened. So what this means for us in our day-to-day -day is to remember that it's not that we're on some path of life. So you, tomorrow, most of you just, you'll go to work, you'll do, uh, you'll be at your home, in your neighborhood, you'll be doing what you do on a Monday, and you have your life, and then there's this spiritual realm that's running parallel to your life. That's not it. That God is actually, that, that we live in, in, a, in a spiritual realm, that God's work is, is, through the, all of human life and all of human history, God's work is known and experienced. It's not some separate thing that we add on. That our story is part of God's story. All of history and all of life is, is God's story. That God created the world and it was good and it was right and he created people to, to be in the world and to do good work. And to, but, but, so that's sort of the first chapter. But the second chapter of the story is that people fail that we turn from our creator, we go our own way, we sin against him, and the world is very broken. And that brokenness is experienced, and we, we need a, it separates us from God eternally. It brings about death. So a rescuer comes, Jesus comes into the world, into human history, and lives a perfect life that nobody could live, and, and dies a death that we deserve to die in our place. And then he rose again, so there's this rescue, but now this is a restoration of all life. And, and God is restoring us, and God is, will ultimately restore the heavens and the earth, and it will all be made new, and it's being made new. That means, very practically, when you go to work tomorrow, that your work can be good. It's part of God's story of restoring all things. If you design something at work, that God can be glorified in that, because work is not part of a curse. Work was part of the first chapter where God made everything good, that, God, that Adam and Eve tended, uh, they had to tend to the earth and be stewards of it. And as you create something, as you manage something, as you complete a project at work, th these are all, it's all part of, 
of God's goodness and his grace, and you can experience him even in that. Everything that you do, it's not a separate, you're not on a separate track, but God is at work in history. And if we learn nothing else from Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, it's that Jesus is part of history and still is today. You know, this means any moment of your life, as God is continuing to restore the world, you can be part of it. We had our annual meeting last week of the, of the church, and um, we, there was some testimony shared. A woman named Susanna shared her testimony. She went to uh, a seven-year-old birthday party. And I love children, and I love birthdays, and I'm sort of in that season of life where a seven-year-old birthday is something that I've experienced a number of times over the past year. And she was very open, just saying, God, however you want to use me as I go to this party, you know, I want to be open to what you have. When I pray when I go to a seven-year-old birthday party, the prayer is more something like, Lord, please help me to get through this. <laughs> Lord, I hope there's good snacks so that I can, you know, it'll be a little bit more tolerable. Now, again, I'm not anti-birthday. I'm not anti any of that stuff. <laughs> Maybe a little. But, the, but it's not my first thought isn't, oh, this is a great opportunity for me. It's like, oh, you know, which one of us is going to go to this gathering? Even a really well-planned one, seriously. <laughs> Susanna is not like me. She was very open to what God had, and she got in a conversation with uh, another parent at the party. The conversation turned to matters of faith and spirituality, and she shared about her faith in Jesus, and this person was interested. They got talking about some things. And they end up, after the party, they go together and they start praying together. And this woman prays in faith to Jesus Christ and comes to faith in Jesus at a, at a seven-year-old birthday party. The point is this, that we can live our lives with an openness to a God who is at work in the world, everywhere you are. Not just that you would convince, again, not just that you would convince somebody else that it's true, but that you can experience God in all that you do. There's a goodness to your work, there's a goodness to your relationship, and, and you bring that with you everywhere you are. So that's the first thing. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is a very specific historical stuff that Jesus did. Uh, secondly, and a similar idea, Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And that's where we come to this text today. We talk a lot about the crucifixion of Jesus, his suffering, um, his death. We sing about it because we understand that that was a death that we were, I was supposed to die, that he died in my place so that I could live and get new life through him. But we don't talk a lot about his burial and why it's so important. Take a look at your text. It's on the back of your bulletin. This is John chapter 19. It says, uh, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. He actually was a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council, so he had a lot at stake there. So with Pilate's permission, continuing in verse 38, uh, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had early, earlier visited Jesus at night. Now, when we started this series, we're looking at this Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is not scripture. It doesn't have the authority of the Bible. But it drives us deep into the Bible. So now when we say Jesus was buried, how was Jesus buried? 
And we know from this passage that it's Joseph and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Okay, that drives us to another part of Scripture. When did Nicodemus visit Jesus at night? It's one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. We get this religious leader, Nicodemus, and he goes to Jesus and he says, Look, we believe that you're from God because you're doing miraculous things. And Jesus said to him, Listen, nobody can... No, it, 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 Nicodemus wants to know, how, how, can you be, how can we be sure of, of heaven and how can we be assured of, uh, of eternal life and fellowship and being right with God? And this is a group of people, the Pharisees, who did everything they could to be right with God. They did everything right. They, they, the whole Old Testament law, they just were very uh, devout and religious to follow and keep every command of God. They were very religious. And Jesus said, you can't experience God you can't see heaven unless you're born again. And Nicodemus was confused. Born again? I can't be, I'm an adult. I can't be born. I can't be in my mother's womb again. This is strange. And Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and of the spirit. So you've got to be born of water, kind of a natural, physical birth. And you've got to be born of the spirit. You've got to be born of the spirit. You have to be born again in a spiritual way, in the spiritual realm. Uh, born from above. You've you got to be born again. And he, he's trying to explain this to Nicodemus. He said, you should know this. He said, he said, this is, and he gave an example. He said, it's just like when Moses lifted up a, a, a snake in the wilderness. So now he's pushing us to another part of scripture. Okay, so Jesus was buried, and we know that because it was Nicodemus. Nicodemus went to Jesus somewhere else. And then Jesus, in that conversation, is referring to the Old Testament, there was a time in the Old Testament where they were, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They're sinning, sinning against God. They're complaining against God. And God sends judgment against them. And there's snakes that come, and they're venomous, and they bite the people. The people realize they've sinned against God. They call out for help. And God gives this instruction. He said, Moses, take a snake, a bronze, put it on a, you're going to put it on a stick, you're gonna, on a pole. And all people have to do if they've been bitten by the snake is look at that bronze snake and they will be healed. And they were. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up this snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, must, must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Let me, let me just read it to you. This is John chapter 3. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He's saying, Nicodemus, the kingdom of heaven and knowing God isn't about following all the rules and all that you do and how you behave is what you believe. And he said, when you see me lifted up, you'll know that you need, to, you need to put your faith in me. And that's how eternal life and a right relationship with God, this is how it comes about, by, by our belief, not our, by our behavior. And this is the man who now is, is Joseph and Nicodemus, this man, are now seeking for Jesus' body. Now, what, what, what did they do with crucified bodies? I didn't even know the answer to this question. When the Romans crucified somebody for a crime, 
They would crucify the person, they would die, and then the body would be taken down and given to the family to bury in whatever the family's custom in their family tomb. Except if you committed a crime against the state, if you committed a crime against Rome, a crime of sedition, they wouldn't take your body down. They would crucify you and leave you as an example to be left to the elements and the vultures and the, to just shame and desecration of your body. Because you, uh, if you're going to commit a crime against the state, they want to make an example of you. And, but at a certain point, the remains or whatever's left when this, is, this horrible thing is finished get thrown in. They, you wouldn't put that in your family grave because you wouldn't want to, uh, you know, soil the family grave and it's kind of cursed and shamed. They would just take those bodies and throw them in the trash heap outside the city. Kind of a, a mass grave. They'd just take them and throw them. So it's kind of risky now that Joseph and Nicodemus, uh, that Joseph goes to Pilate, the governor, and asks for that body. Because he could be seen as a co-conspirator against the state. Saying, hey, I want to I preserve this body or I want to give it a proper burial. And think about Nicodemus. He, now, Nicodemus and, and Joseph, they didn't do anything to stop the, that we understand. They didn't do anything to stop the crucifixion, this execution. They just, it, it, it happened. But you can picture Nicodemus, and I'm kind of speculating here, but you can picture him at the crucifixion, and you see Jesus being raised up on the cross. And he remembers, Jesus said, I have to be lifted up. Who, that God sent his son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, and at that moment, believe. And it was willing to risk re reputation, these men, to, to get that body and to give it a proper burial. So they get the body, and, and they wrap it, and they, uh, instead of being thrown, instead of being left out and thrown into a mass grave, they, they put it in a, in a tomb, a tomb that is sealed with a rock, and that is, uh, ends up being guarded by Romans. So, what, who cares? <laughs> What's the point? The fact that they buried this body makes the resurrection of Jesus very believable. If Jesus' body gets thrown into a trash heap, and then somebody, some days later, comes back and says, hey, I've seen Jesus, he appeared to me. You say, you're crazy. We threw his body into a heap over there. It just... Um, you know, and somebody else has a vision of Jesus, and a group of people have a vision of Jesus. And that's, okay, you, you're saying that you're an eyewitness of risen Jesus, but, you know, we all saw his body trashed. But the body was missing. The tomb is empty. The empty tomb is part of the evidence. Or Jesus comes walking out, and he's covered in trash and, and rat bites, and you say, oh, well, clearly he wasn't dead when they threw him in the trash. But they, the fact that he was wrapped in pounds and pounds of this stuff, and it placed in, in a sealed tomb, he was most certainly dead. And the tomb was most certainly empty. So the stone is gone, and the, the, a guarded tomb. If his body's just out in the trash, anybody could take it or do something with it, but... If they don't bury Jesus, it's hard to believe the resurrection. We were at a um, conference yesterday. About 30 of us from the church were up in Bangor, Maine, of all places. They had an apologetics conference. So it's a place where you learn about how to understand and defend the Christian faith. And they had one of the speakers there was a man named Lee Strobel. I'd never heard Lee Strobel speak. I've read his book, uh, Case for Christ. Uh, very good, very good book. But he, in his journey, his, he was a non-believer. He was a 
uh, editor for Chicago Tribune. And so he was a reporter. And his wife came to faith in Jesus and thought she was crazy. And he went on this journey to try to disprove, look at the evidence of the resurrection and, and is this historically tenable? Is this something that we can believe? And he, he, and he was just telling his story yesterday and he just said, look, you've got the execution, you've got an early attestation of, of people believing Jesus rose from the dead, but you have an empty tomb that you can't explain in other ways and you have the eyewitnesses many of them, and all these things together really give us great confidence. So the fact that Jesus was buried is very important for us because it, it makes the resurrection very uh, believable. Now, we still receive it by faith, uh, but this, this makes it all believable. So Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. So he, was, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. And lastly here, Jesus descended to hell. Um, it's a good question. So, where did Jesus, so we know if Jesus' body went to a tomb, where did his spirit go? And I'll say this. Christians don't all agree on how to explain what exactly, what was Jesus doing in the time between his death and his resurrection? And the problem is, so there was a Christian college that was doing a teaching series, like we're doing through the phrases of the Apostles' Creed, and there was 12 faculty members at, who taught theology and Bible at this college, and they couldn't agree on the, how to answer that question, so they just skipped that phrase when they were doing this teaching series. Now, I'm tempted to do the same thing, just kind of skip over it, and just like, whatever you believe is fine. Um, I won't. But, the, but Scripture doesn't say a lot about what Jesus was doing then. But so normally, I would just show you the few passages of Scripture that speak to this or that people use to, to describe this. But each one of those individual ones is actually pretty hard to understand, too. It would take too much time and for the scope of what we're doing this morning. Uh, we just can't. I don't, it's beyond our scope. But it's just, the Scripture doesn't say a lot. And what we do know is Jesus, Jesus went where dead people go, to this realm of the, the dead. We say he descended to hell. That word hell in the New Testament is the word Hades. And in the Old Testament scriptures, this, the notion of Sheol is the Hebrew notion. It's just the realm of the dead. It's a place uh, where, where your soul goes when you die. And for those who die in relationship with God, in a right relationship is a place of paradise and blessing. And for those who are uh, separated from God, it's a place of separation from God's blessing, that we experience God in those ways as we enter into death. So if we were to say Jesus descended to the dead is probably a better translation. But that word Hades is just, we just, in English, the Apostles' Creed was only sort of being spoken in English in the 16th century. So... It was a later translation, but we, when we say Jesus descended to hell, we're not saying he went to sort of a final uh, lake of fire or a place of destruction. It was just more this realm of the dead. That's where Jesus, and Jesus was fully dead and he fully entered that place. Sort of the New Testament notion of Hades. Not the New Testament notion of Gehenna, which was more that final uh, place of destruction and, and fire. But Jesus went there, and we, we use this sort of traditional language, Jesus descended to hell, 
We use traditional language. We say, I believe in the Holy Ghost. We could just say Holy Spirit, same thing. Um, Jesus descended to hell. He descended to the realm of the dead, same thing. We say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We could say the Holy Universal Church, same thing. We just use the traditional language. That's what we do. But, again, what happened? What was Jesus doing that I'm not confident of? But what I am confident is this. And this is why this is so important. It, whatever hell Jesus experienced, he experienced it so that I might experience heaven. You see, when we think about hell and death, the essence of hell and death is separation from God. Everywhere in Scripture, it's just an absence of God's blessing. Whenever we think of paradise and heaven, we see, we, we see that the ultimate, the most important thing is that a fellowship with God an experience of God's presence and his blessings. And so we, we, we have this great contrast. Jesus suffered the absence of God, hell. He took the punishment that you deserved and that I deserve, real separation from God the Father. Whatever hell was for him, it gained our heaven. So Jesus had to suffer that hell so that we could enter his heaven. In in. in Instead of, um, you know, why don't we just skip that part of the creator? Why do we leave it in there if it's controversial? Controversial. Wouldn't it be easier just to, um, to skip over it? And, and it, you know, it's a good question. But it's, it's so important. And it's becoming one of my favorite parts of the creed. When I say Jesus descended to hell, that's where I deserve to be. I need that, a death that's just uh, separated and apart from God. But he suffered the hell I deserve so that I could receive the heaven that I never could have earned on my own. Here's where we'll leave this. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate reminds us that our faith is just rooted in human history. And every, your day-to-day -day life, God is still unfolding his story today. And we can be open to, his, to, to being on mission with him in that. Jesus' burial reminds us that the, the resurrection of Jesus is very believable. And we have a lot of evidence. And if his body had just been thrown in the trash, it would be a very difficult kind of a situation. But, um, but we have that. And Jesus descending to hell reminds us that he's given us something that we de he, he's given us something that we never deserve. He got something that we very much deserve in our place because he loved us. My prayer for you this morning is that you would, in some way, be strengthened in your faith, that you might grow in your faith, and just be open as you go about your week to anything that God has in store for you. Amen.